Okay? Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word as we prepare our hearts. Father, it is so good to be in your house today. I thank you for your spirit's ministry in our lives. I'm asking, Father, that there be a willingness in our hearts, in our minds right now, to hear from you. Uh, in my feeble attempt to try to uh, uh, unpackage a portion of your word, I, I pray that your spirit, your, that the spirit of God would just speak so succinctly, so specifically to your children this morning. Each of us have come with a pile of different needs. Some of us have just finished a, an incredibly encouraging week. Some of us have, have heard things, have been so disappointed this week. I just pray, Lord, that you might meet us at our point of need this morning. But ultimately, Lord, our prayer is that through your word that you'll be glorified. And so we pray to this end, Father, that you will find glory and know, Father, that we will find just help and nourishment and encouragement and challenge from your word this morning. This is our prayer. For we pray it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. I encourage you to put the, uh, the PowerPoint up right now. Many of you will have heard of the name Samuel Clemens. What was the name he actually went by when he was writing books in the 1800s? Do you remember? Mark Twain. That's right. All of us, or most, many of us in our high school days, you know, were forced to read Huckleberry Finn and some other things like that. So many of us are familiar with Mark Twain. The fact of the matter is Mark Twain, though he was a brilliant writer and probably one of the great writer, greatest writers of the uh, 19, American writers of the 19th century, he was also an individual who had known some real hardship and suffering in life. Uh, in particular, the death of a, a, a favored daughter that just so uh, calloused his soul that he was never that impressed by the church. But frankly, he was... Uh, often finding ways to mock the church, saying the church never lived up to what it purported to be. Maybe he's right, maybe he's not. So he said uh, one time uh, during one of his speeches, he, he, um, he involved himself in an experiment, experiment in which he got a large cage with a locked door, and he opened up the door, and he said he put in a dog and a cat in the cage to see if this dog and a cat, who are supposedly mortal enemies, to see if given some period of time whether they, in fact, would get along with one another. And he said it was surprising, just within a minute or so, they were getting along quite fine. So he said he upped the ante on the experiment, and he let the dog and cat out. He opened up the door, and he, he threw in a bird, a pig, and a goat. And he said, given a, a fairly short period of time, this goat, this pig, and the bird seemed to get along. So he said, I upped the ante again. I opened the door, let the bird, the pig, and the goat in. And I opened the door, and I threw in a Baptist, a Lutheran, and a Presbyterian. <laughs> And he said, in less than a minute, there wasn't a living thing left in the cage. <laughs> that was his not-so-subtle way of saying we don't always measure up to what we report to be. We, we, we are still viewed in a very post-Christian society, as we well know. We're still viewed to be a place that you should be able to find love. And certainly grace. Although you ask the average university student or ask the average Canadian, what is grace? And 
It's amazing what you'll receive. It's not a word that is readily understood or could be readily defined nowadays. That's why so many of the new modern translations don't use the word grace. They use the word loving kindness. That seems to be understood better. But grace is still a great word. Amazing grace. We all know that song, right? Amazing grace. Amazing grace. When was the last time someone did something to you that you know you didn't deserve? And how did that feel? Someone met a need in your life that, wow, why would they have done that? Someone paid something or a meal or something, and you wonder, whoa, I didn't expect that. Someone took the blame for you, Matt, and you know you didn't deserve that. Now, I know that would never happen in your life, but (laughs) some of us have experienced that. I remember driving up to a parking attendant to pay my parking bill. I'd parked in the park, and I'd pay my parking. And she said to me, oh, that car that's driving away, they paid your bill. I have no idea who they were. How did I feel? It still causes wonder. A little bit of awe. Wow. That's what grace does. Grace still is good news. We just forget how good the good news is sometimes. We forget to tell others about good news. Everybody wants to hear about good news. I mean, you just watch the late news every night. and I mean, news is what? The only news that sells is bad news. You know, you watch the late news, and after you're finished, you're ready to commit suicide. It's just rotten news all over the world. But they generally end that late news with that lovely human interest story, just so you can slip into bed and feel like all the world's good. You know, about the firemen who saved the little kitty cat from the fire, and everybody, oh, now I can go to sleep. I'm good with the world. I mean, grace, it still marvels people. They're still yearning for it. They can't necessarily articulate what it, but when they see it, when they experience it, they, they go, wow, grace, grace. Um, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a Bible commentator of a generation or two ago. He said, um, uh, love that goes upwards is worship. Love that goes outward is service and ministry. But love that stoops, stoops, is grace. The actual word for grace in the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, is the word chassid. And the literal translation of the word chassid into English is not grace. It's to stoop or to bend. To bend, to stoop. And God chose to stoop. He chose to bend before you in his sovereign providential will. And we have been the beneficiaries of that forevermore. We deserve his wrath. We deserve his judgment. As the scriptures say, we're at enmity with God. We are enemies of God by our very nature, our human nature. And God chose to stoop and not give us what we deserve, but he gives us grace instead. And I can't, I can't get over that when I realize how deeply flawed I am before a thrice holy God. And he chooses to love me anyway. This is good news. Don't forget how good this good news is. And your friends and family need to hear good news. They want to hear about good news. We just have to learn to do it in winsome ways. Winsome ways. We just uh, experienced Christmas 
And we had great times. I know you did and I did with family. With all our kids who are in different areas of Canada came home. And this was great. But what we get to do in January is we get to pay for Christmas. And that really sucks. And uh, we're just about there. But imagine you're now in January and you've got to pay for Christmas. And you go to the bank to pay your visa bill. And you walk up to the teller and uh, he diggles around on the computer and on the screen says, Oh, Oh, this, Mr. Jones, this is your this is your lucky day. A pastor, Bob McRoberts, came in here yesterday and paid your visa bill completely. It's completely paid for. Now, I, I've known Bob for thirty years. I know him somewhat, fairly well, and I can assure you that will never ever happen. <laughs> so don't hold your breath. I'm in trouble, I can tell you right now. But Bob, I couldn't pick on Pastor Matt, sorry. And the wonderful thing is he's told the teller, and the teller's now telling you that he's going to continue to pay your visa bill every month for the rest of your life. That's not going to happen, but just, you know. It's a very poor analogy in many ways and can fall apart, I recognize it. But that is the sense of what we receive by God's grace. Through Christ's finished work on the cross, his grace keeps on giving. We shouldn't cheapen it, but it's so wonderful to know that keeps giving and giving so I might stay in relationship with my Heavenly Father. It's good news. I want to talk about grace this morning. Entitled the message, Love That Stoops. From a fairly uh, obscure Old Testament story, if you didn't get through Sunday school as a child like myself, I didn't come to Christ till later on. Uh, you may or may not have heard about this story, but in Sunday school, I'm told everybody hears about this story. But I encourage you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to read that in just a few moments. Let me just back up and give you some context to the story we're going to be reading and looking at this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's the story of Mephibosheth. And we have to go back 3,000 years to a fairly archaic time in history, one in which a a king who has been uh, in battle, who has been conquered, whose uh, empire is toppling, he's in big trouble. Many of them would be killed. The reality is that not only they would be killed, but many of his family members would be killed or placed into exile. And so when your king is killed, particularly for the king's family, his extended large family, it's a time of pandemonium, a time of just panic. I mean, you know what's following next on on the heels of your king uh, losing power. You're going to be either murdered or placed into exile. It's not going to be pleasant. And after years of uh, luxury and enjoyment and pleasure, there's nothing going to be uh, anything like that. It's going to be a time of suffering. We can go back to a a portion of Scripture in in 2 Samuel chapter 4. We can go to the next slide. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, it gives some of the background of what's going on at this time. Let me read it for you. Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when Saul, King Saul, and Jonathan, Prince Jonathan, were killed at the Battle of Jezreel. When news of the battle reached the capital, the child's nurse grabbed him and fled, but she fell and dropped him as she was running, and he became crippled 
as a result. So in her haste, she drops this infant, Mephibosheth, the son of Prince Jonathan. Prince John and Jonathan is best friends of David. Many of us know that story, right? They are like kinship. They are the best. They are buddies. They're not friends. They're like, they're like knitted together as very close confidants. Jonathan and David have grown up in difficult times for David. His whole 10 years of his 20s, uh, you know, Saul was at different times wanting to kill Jonathan's friend David. He was in hiding at times. It was, it was in this that their relationship had bound tightly. And so Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, in the midst of the pandemonium is going on with the, with the death of King Saul and Prince Jonathan in the Battle of Jezreel, they're just flying in different directions. She picks up the boy, he, she drops him, and he's disabled in some way. Now, I mean, I, it was, I like to picture it this way. The first apartment my wife and I got was right around Young and Shepherd in, in Toronto, uh, just off of Earl's Bell Park. You know, back in the late 80s, it was tough to get anything. Uh, just there was not apartment space, so we got what we could, and it was not really a nice place at all. It was really not nice at all. But that's all we could get. And I can remember, even though my wife kept that place clean and tidy, she's a nurse, so she's into, you know, germophobia and all that kind of... I mean, it was just, it's clean and tidy. But I would say, close your eyes, I'm going to turn the light switch on in the kitchen. Because once you turned on the lights in the kitchen, you'd see the cockroaches. (laughs) That's what it was like. Saul's family, like cockroaches, were just in panic at this moment of pandemonium. They were just scattering every direction to get away from being killed uh, or exiled. And so it's in the midst of this occasion that all this chaos is happening. This little boy is actually crippled. And then we move 10 years forward. Move with me 10 years forward. He's now somewhere in his 20s, likely. And uh, we come to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And starting at verse 1, I want to read this passage. Let's follow it. If you have your Bible, just follow with me. One day David began wondering if anyone in Saul's family was still alive. For he had promised Jonathan that he would show kindness. There's that word. Chassid. Kindness. Loving kindness. Kindness. There's that word. Kindness. Grace. To show grace. Kindness to them. He summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, Is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show kindness to them in any way I can. Ziba replied, Yes, one of Jonathan's son is still alive, but he's crippled. Where is he? The king asked. He's in Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Machir, son of Emil. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and David's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low in great fear and said, I... I am your servant. But David said, don't be afraid. I've asked you to come so that I can be kind. There's that word, chassid. Kind, grace, loving kindness. To you, because of my vow to your father, Jonathan, I will give you all the land that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you may live here with me at the palace. Mephibosheth fell to the ground before the king. Should the king show such kindness to a dead dog like me, he exclaimed. Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You 
and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for his family. But Mephibosheth will live here at the palace with me. Ziba, who had 15 sons and 20 servants, replied, Yes, my lord, I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly with David as though he were one of his own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, moved to Jerusalem to live at the palace. So it's a wonderful story of grace and mercy, unmerited grace given to someone who didn't necessarily deserve it. What's happened is 20 years has passed. And in that occasion where David has certainly mourned the loss of Saul and the loss of his good friend Jonathan, but very quickly also took command of the country. And 20 years have passed, and he has been very successful. This is known as the golden age of the United Kingdom. He's been very... In fact, he has enlarged uh, Israel from a small little country of about 6,000 square miles to now 60,000 square miles in a couple decades. And every king and neighboring pagan nation is fearful of David because he does not lose in battle. His armies win. And they revere him. And they're humbled by him. And in this moment, because now David is now 20 years, he's, he's now well into his middle age. And one evening, he's sort of nostalgic and thinking back to all that God has done and the goodness and the grace of God in his own life. And he's feeling humbled by it. He's happy. But in his nostalgia, he asks one of his chroniclers to open up the, uh, a history book of sorts and say, is, and he says, is there anyone left in King Saul's family? Because he knows what happens to the previous king's family. They're either killed, imprisoned, or exiled. Is there anyone left in King Saul's family? Because he wants to demonstrate grace to them, not because they deserve it, not because they merit it, not because he owes them anything. He wants to show grace to them because of the grace God has shown to him. And then he says specifically because of Jonathan's sake. I'd like to show grace to someone in Saul's family, not because they merit it, but because of a promise I made to my best friend, Jonathan. And you don't have to be a PhD in theology to figure out there's a, there's a co-relationship going between here and Christ, Jonathan and Christ. In theological terms, it's called a type of Christ. I mean, Jonathan is acting, in a sense, as a type of Christ. Because of Jonathan, I'm going to show this grace to one of his offspring. And Ziba says, uh, yeah, there, there, there actually is someone. His name is uh, Mephibosheth. And, and verses 2 through verse 4, you get a sense. It doesn't come out and say it blatantly, but I get a sense telegraphed between the verses, between the lines, a sense in which he's not really overly enamored by this individual. He doesn't really want to tell David about this individual because he's not the kind of guy you want really in your palace. He's not a warrior. He's not a big, noble, courageous warrior type, that, the kind of people they've had for the last two decades in the palace, people who go out and win wars. This guy's kind of a hermit. He's Kind of a, he's kind of a guy who's been hiding out, scared to death. He's a bit of a coward. We don't really want people like that infecting those individuals, those young men who are in, our, in the palace. You get that sense, not blatantly, but you get a sense. But you also get the sense from David that he's not looking for the man's resume. It doesn't matter what he did. I'm not going to share this, this, this kindness to him because of anything he's done. I'm going to do it because of his father, Jonathan. I'm going to demonstrate God's grace to him, not because of he merits it or deserves it, because of what my relationship with his father has been. So you see this mounting sense of uh, 
the plot thickens and this, this grace and mercy that David is going to bestow to someone who is probably not the most courageous individual you have ever met. And he finds out from Ziba, his servant Ziba, who had been King Saul's servant, now serving David, he finds from him that Mephibosheth has been living in this place, this, this outlier, this, this, this city called Lodabar. It's out in no man's land. It's, it's way out there where people go to hide from their past. There's stuff i got to get away from. I'm going to go live in Lodabar. He's been living there for almost uh, over 20 years, probably. They're thereabouts in Lodabar. The word Lodabar is, is literally a Hebrew word that they've just taken out of the Hebrew and put it into the English Bible. But the actual word Lodabar, translated into English, is barren place. He's living in a barren place, a spiritually barren place, in, in no man's land where people go to hide from their past. He's living like a hermit way out there. And I find it ironic that he's hiding from the very man who wants to bestow grace to him. Isn't that ironic? You know any people like that in our society? Any family members? Neighbors? Friends? Hiding from the very Savior who wants to just bestow grace, mercy, and love? Why? It seems we live these days in an ABC society, anything but Christianity. And there's a sense in which they've drunk the Kool-Aid and they're believing things and characterizing Christianity and Jesus and Christians in just really wacky ways. The media's been really good at it. Very good at it. So there's a sense in which this guy has been hiding from the very individual who wants to just show love and mercy, and bounty, grace, and demonstrate this grace grace to this individual. I mean, the reality is in our society, people can live in Lodabar. If you live in Lodabar long enough, whether it's on that university campus or whether it's on the neighborhoods in which in the streets we live on, if you live in Lodabar long enough, you start to convince yourself, you know, Lodabar's not such a bad place. It's actually a good place. It's actually a better place than anywhere else I could be. And when I get to hell, it's going to be such a great party. And they convince themselves with lies. Lodabar is not a good place. But if you stay there long enough, you begin to believe the media on Lodabar. Um, in verses 5 through verse 7... We see, uh, again, I'm going to take some liberties with this, these pass- these, this, this little passage of what could have, could have been happening. And we have Mephibosheth living in Lodabar, this, this hermit. And then the, the, the guard on the wall of, uh, of Lodabar calls out that a chariot approaches. And, and everybody wonders who's that going to be. Because very few visitors come to Lodabar except people are hiding from their past. Maybe it's the merchants coming to sell their wares. And then the, the guard on the wall yells out, it's one of the king's chariots. And right then Mephibosheth goes, I've finally been caught. That's David coming after me. It's taken him two decades, but he's found out where I am. And I can imagine in his disabled state, he, he gets himself into his apartment and he, and he sort of with his crutches crawls into his room and he, he barriers the door and he hides under his bed and, and the, the chariot comes into the area and comes up to the apartment. He kicks in the door, the great uh, king's messenger, and he yells out, Mephibosheth, the king wants to see you. And he takes him to the king. And we read in verse 7, the first words out of the king's mouth to Mephibosheth is what? Fear not. Don't be afraid. You look in your New Testament, and Jesus uses that phrase more 
often than any other phrase when he makes that first meeting. Because people are, find this stuff all so foreign of what we have become so familiar with. They find it very foreign. And there's a sense of, what's this all about? Should I fear this? Because when you live in Lodabar long enough, you don't only believe some of the lies of their, what they say about your Savior. They, you, you start to believe that the Savior actually might be your enemy. Yeah. I remember reading about, oh, 15 years ago or so, a woman coming out of a grocery store in a town in Texas. She had two bags of groceries. She came in, out into the parking lot, came to her car, got in her car, put the bags of groceries in the passenger seat, put her key uh, into the ignition. And before starting it, she just went to correct her rear view mirror. And she noticed a, a man in a pickup truck directly behind her in the parking lot. And he was very animated and yelling at her. She could, and she got spooked by, well, what, who is this crazy guy? And she just started her car. I'm getting out of here. She pulled out, and she noticed right away he pulled out after her. She got onto the, onto the road, and she started to speed down the road, weaving in and out of tra- traffic, and noticed that he was keeping pace with her. She got onto the freeway, and she sped down the freeway, noticing that he was keeping pace with her. She was terrified by this point. She came into her housing development area, raced up to her house into the driveway. She left her groceries. She got out of the car, and she started running to her front door of the car, fumbling with her keys to get the key, the right key to get into safety, get into her house. And the pickup truck came in behind her car, and she noticed as she was trying to get the key that he didn't come running after her. He came, he went started to go running to her car, and so she stopped to watch, what's going on here? And he went to her car, opened up the back door of her car, and pounced on an intruder who had been hiding in the back seat with a butcher's knife. All the while, he had been saying, Get out of your car! There's a crazy guy in the back seat with a knife! He wants to kill you! And all that while, she kept running away from her Savior. As fast as she could. Got any friends and family who are running away from the Savior as fast as they can? And all he wants to do is show mercy and grace. That's the beauty of what we get the opportunity. We are agents of that grace. To enable them to see that Jesus only wants their best. And we do that in a myriad dozen million ways. Winsome ways to show that grace. Mephibosheth, verse 8, finally gets it. He comes before King David and he, goes, he bows down and he says in verse 8, I feel like a dead dog in Lodabar. I mean, how low can you feel than a dead carcass, a flea-bitten carcass dog just lying there? That's the picture he's giving. That's what I feel like. And what's David's response? Verse 9, I'm going to treat you like my son. I'm going to adopt you. There's a spiritual, theological understanding of what we have in Christ. We have become adopted sons. I'm going to adopt you, and you're going to come live in the palace, and you're going to know plenty for the rest of your life. In those last verses, I can well imagine that scene in which David is standing and then sits down at the front of his banqueting table in the big banqueting room that they meet as a family every evening for the evening meal in the palace. He waits for his family, and in comes Ammon, and he comes and sits beside his father David on his left. And beautiful, his daughter, beautiful Tamar, comes and sits beside Ammon. And then the very studious and wise Solomon's been spending the day in the library. He leaves the library and comes and sits beside his daddy on the right side, because he is Solomon, right hand of David. And then in comes dashing Absalom with his long, black, curly black hair, you know, all buffed up and coming in. And just straddles the chair and sits beside Solomon. 
Joab, the great commander of the armies who have never lost in battle for 20 years, he comes in ramrod straight and marches in and comes and sits at the banqueting table. And then they wait, and they wait, and they hear the tap, and a tap, a tap, tap, a tap of Mephibosheth's crutches along the marble floor of the hallway to the banqueting room. He finally comes around, and he comes, and he, he collapses in his chair, exhausted from just getting from his room to the banqueting room. And he looks at King David, and he says... King, I'm so sorry for being late for dinner once again. And David and the family look at him and smile and say, Mephibosheth, you never have to apologize. We're so glad you're here with us every evening at the banqueting table. Do you think Mephibosheth understood grace? Every evening when he sat at the king's table, he saw the plenty before him. And as an adopted son of the king, he knew he didn't deserve any of it. But that didn't matter. David gave it to him anyway. We have been recipients of that same grace through Jesus Christ. And we have the joy of being not just the recipients of that grace, but also agents of that grace to family members, to friends, to strangers. So they might too see Jesus through deed and through word. I began our our message this morning with probably arguably the greatest American writer of the 19th century. How about we end with the greatest, arguably, one of the greatest American writers of the 20th century. His name, Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway knew the gospel. His grandparents had been missionaries in China. His mother and father had been professing Christians. But she had been of the sort that was incredibly legalistic and had hounded and hounded her son to the point in which he hated his mother and hated the Savior she worshipped. In fact, one day she sent him a birthday gift. It was a box. He opened the box, and she had sent him the gun that his father had killed himself with. What a great gift to give to your kid. That's mom for Ernest. Not enamored by the church or her Savior. He told a story, though, a short story. He, he loved Spain, had fought in the Civil War in the 1930s, And it was the story of a father, a Spanish father, and his son who were estranged. There was a breaking of ways, and his son went to live riotously, party life, in the big city of Madrid. And years passed, and finally, the father was feeling, I need to make this right with my son. Uh, This estrangement has to come to an end. He needs my forgiveness, and I need his, his relationship. And so he placed a small ad in the El Libra newspaper, the largest circulation newspaper in Madrid. Short little ad. It said this, Paco. That was his son's name, Paco. Very common name in Spain. I think it's something like Peter or Paul. Paco, meet me Tuesday noon in front of Hotel Montana. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. Tuesday came, and the father made his way to Hotel Montana, a very palatial, beautiful hotel in the middle of Madrid with a large courtyard in front of this beautiful facade of a hotel, this large courtyard. On that Tuesday near noon, he went walking towards the Hotel Montana, turned the corner, and before him, as he looked at the great, beautiful Hotel Montana and the large hotel uh, uh, courtyard in front of the Hotel Montana, he saw 800 young men all named Paco, looking for forgiveness. 
A lot of runaways. A lot of estranged people. Estranged from their heavenly Father. Looking for grace. Looking for grace. And we get the joy of being agents of that grace in many myriad small and large ways to prove to our neighbors, our children, our parents, strangers, that Jesus is alive because he's transformed my life. That's the joy of being a follower of Christ in Ottawa, that you're on mission. It's not about just sitting and planting your butt in a pew. It's about being on mission Monday to Saturday, showing the love of Christ, the chassid, the loving kindness of Christ to those you come in contact with. My prayer is that Calvary, with your pastor, are going to be able to tell these stories over and over and over again of grace, testimonies of grace, and the expanding ministry of the gospel here in Ottawa through this lighthouse called Calvary. Amen? So let's pray to that end. Father, I thank you for this grace that each of us have received through Jesus Christ. If there is someone here this morning who can't testify with absolute assurance that they know Christ as Savior, Lord, I pray that they will speak to someone today. It is good news. Everybody wants to hear about good news. Lord, would you just help them to be courageous enough to speak to a friend, to the pastor, to someone this morning before leaving. But what this all means, for those of us who have been walking with Christ, maybe for many years, Lord, we have this continued mission that we're a part of. Help us to be diligent, courageous, to have those opportunities when we see them to say a word in season that is seasonable, not legalistic, not judgmental, but wonderful and dripping with grace so that others might see Jesus. For your glory, but our great good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.